I'd like now to introduce Hiram Morgan, who needs no introduction to specialists on Hugh O'Neill. He has written the great book on Tyrone's Rebellion, which came out as long ago as 1993. Yeah, um, his background, he's from Belfast, and he was educated at the University of Cambridge. He now teaches in Cork, so he's moved about quite a bit, teaches history in Cork. And without further ado, I'll hand over now for him to talk to you about ourselves alone, winning and losing, 1596 to 1600. So, Hiram Morgan. Thank you. And thank you uh, to Siobhan Fitzpatrick and the whole team here at the Academy who have organized this brilliant event today. I don't think uh, Hugh O'Neill ever got a reception like this in Dublin. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, what I'd like to do today is um, to outline the potential of O'Neill in the middle years of the Nine Years' War, specifically in 1598, of actually winning the war on his own with the other Irish Confederates as a sort of national liberation. Was that, they asked, was that possible? Or indeed, in fact, outlining the limitations of why it wasn't possible. Because it, were, it looks on paper that that opportunity existed in 1598. So I'd like to begin by talking about O'Neill's contemporary reputation. O'Neill was a ruthless political operator, as you know, but he was a strategic mastermind who was gifted in both art and politics, and that is part of the key to the man. And contemporary reflections on him give a very good impression of the type of individual that he was. William Camden, the English historian of the time, summed him up. He had a strong body, able to endure labor, watching, and hunger. His industry was great, his soul large, and fit for the weightiest business. Much knowledge he had in military affairs and a profound dissembling heart, insomuch as some did prognosticate of him that he was either born to the very great good or the very great hurt of Ireland. And the interesting thing is Peter Lombard, who became subsequently Archbishop of Armagh, when propounding O'Neill's case to the Pope, in 1600, he gave a very similar assessment of O'Neill, showing him to be a politician skilled in the arts of dissimulation and a charismatic leader. And the important thing about both these aspects is that what you have is an individual who uniquely has agency, somebody who can transform events and potentially in this case transform the fortunes of a nation to reverse uh, the Tudor conquest, the ongoing Tudor conquest, that seemed in prospect for a very short time. And that agency draws other people around him who have agency as well. Able lieutenants like Red Hugh O'Donnell, Henry Hovington, Richard Terrell, James Archer and others. A very able set of people around O'Neill. Now if we take the middle years of the war, by 1596 O'Neill who had never intended to make war against England, found himself in a very strong position. The problem was that O'Neill had never intended to fight against England, but England stood in O'Neill's way, his object of being supreme in Ulster. His real intention throughout his career was to be supreme in Ulster. By 96, through a double marriage alliance with the O'Donnells, an oath bound at first secret confederacy of northern chiefs, and then putting together a well-trained and disciplined army. By early 1596, he looked to have achieved his aims. 
because the Crown was offering him a compromise. It was offering local autonomy and de facto religious toleration. However, in 1596, O'Neill and the other Confederates decided instead to accept an offer of Spanish support. Basically, the English, they decided, could not be trusted. And uh, this is the letter that both O'Neill and O'Donnell signed, sent to Philip II, asking for Spanish military intervention and for a Habsburg prince to rule them. But the Spaniards didn't turn up. Immediately after uh, the Spanish agents arrived, the Irish Confederates entered into a long process of deliberate delays to avoid taking their pardons from the English government. Then, in the course of 96, they proceeded to make appeals across Ireland, particularly to Munster, uh, to get support, to widen the struggle. Because if there was going to be a Spanish landing, Munster was going to be important. And they unleashed Richard Terrell into the Midlands of Ireland. A very adept mercenary leader was Terrell. And in the autumn of 96, this meant going back to war against England in the expectation of a landing. However, that Spanish landing in 1596 was diverted to Brittany. And a further attempt in 1597 was uh, heading towards England itself. The fact is, Philip II here, seen in his um, wheelchair, as it were, in this time, he's incapacitated. His decisions are not really uh, very satisfactory at this time stage of the war. And um, the strategic decision to go to Ireland made sense in 96, and this is what his generals told him. But he had other ideas on his mind. So after 97, of course, Philip II dies in 98, and really the Spanish don't take a huge deal of interest until 1600, until his successor, Philip III, gets his act together. And that means that in the interim, there is a period when the Irish essentially have to fight alone. Now, because the war has restarted after 96, there is this attempt in the late spring and summer of 97 for England to go back on the offensive. And that is staged by Lord Deputy Burr. And with a limited force and a shoestring budget, he marches into the center of O'Neill's territories and re-establish the Blackwater Fort. This is him doing it. But it's a very risky business. He himself falls into a ditch uh, making this attack. And the whole thing is very risky indeed. And really, it presages what happens to Bagnell a year later, this expedition. However, Burr, very soon afterwards, dies of fever. His uh, fellow general, who was supposed to make a pincer movement in a, into Donegal, uh, Clifford, who was governor of Connacht, he nearly met disaster at Ballyshannon when O'Neill's men, uh, having uh, seen off uh, Burr from the centre of Tyrone, brought their forces through to Ballyshannon and nearly caught uh, Clifford as he retreated back into Connacht. And then, finally, in that year, uh, John Chichester, governor of Carrickfergus, is killed and his head delivered to O'Neill. So, in fact, the operations in 97 have gone badly wrong, and by the end of the year, a different circumstance pertains. And that is because you've got then a period of extreme crown weakness, when the country is governed by two Lord Justices in Dublin, who are in charge of administrative affairs, and Lord, a Lord Lieutenant General, 
the Earl of Ormond, who's essentially based in Kilkenny. And the disorganization of this government is just uh, flabbergasting, really. Uh, very chaotic. They're divided between themselves. There's divisions between Dublin and Kilkenny. And then there's further divisions between Dublin and London. And they are forced into a whole series of quite pathetic negotiations with O'Neill and O'Donnell, where they make a full and a mockery of the Crown's negotiating commissioners on almost every occasion. And these negotiating tactics are they really the political equivalent of the military tactics that James O'Neill led out to uh, earlier in the day. Um, O'Donnell plays hard cop in the negotiations. O'Neill plays soft cop. He's always pretending to be um, conciliatory. And then they're going to come to a conclusion. And then O'Neill says, well, I, I can't really make a decision without Red Hugh being here. So there isn't any decision. So the negotiations are put off. Or they'd say, oh, um, the Earl of Ormond doesn't have plenipotentiary powers. We can't, we'll have to wait to see what London says. Or um, negotiators are deliberately coached and brought forward some of the more minor figures, usually coached by Henry Hovenden. So the whole thing is quite stage managed. So in these negotiations, which go on periodically into 98, the Confederates led by O'Neill and O'Donnell steadily up the ante in what they're demanding. And they're platform steadily becomes nationwide. So by December 97, O'Neill is demanding free liberty of conscience for all the inhabitants of Ireland. Because previously in spring 96, they'd only got toleration for Ulster. Now he's demanding liberty of conscience for the whole of Ireland. And also they're bringing up abuses and things the English have done to the Irish since the start of the Tudor conquest, right back into the 1550s. The massacre at Mullock Mast, the massacre of the Clandy Boy O'Neill's at Belfast, and so on and so forth. All of these things are being stacked up into, so to expand their list of grievances and expand their list of potential allies. So that by the time of the negotiations in spring 98, O'Neill is making demands on behalf of uh, the Irish in the Midlands on behalf of O'Neill Moore. And basically, he's demanding the scrapping of the patents of the Midlands plantation and effectively the reversal of the plantation in the Midlands. And then when that stage is over, other uh, demands are made for people in Wexford and all sorts of all over the country. So the negotiators, the Earl of Ormond, Bishop Jones, and others are becoming completely frustrated in this process. Um, they finally had O'Neill and O'Donnell together uh, in uh, the spring of 98. Both of them agreed to speak English, which was a start. And, but they found that in the end of the day, O'Neill was as bad as O'Donnell, and they were both on the same wavelength to frustrate English efforts in Ireland. So this is what Secretary Fenton said, and they're all saying the same thing. O'Neill is the most cunning traitor ever found, uh, that this war has sorted to a completely Irish war. Fenton says, for, I, for my part, 
I saw he was very stiff to retain the dependency of the Irish. We're in, as we labored to break that knot, that's a knot of confederacy, and to separate them from him, so we found him very tough to hold them in, as a matter to bear up his greatness. I have not seen such a confluence of discontented people drawn from all parts of the realm to seek refuge of him in their grievances, some for title of land, some for goods, and other challenges, as though Ireland were to be divided again, and they to receive great shares by the power of Tyrone and his rebellion. So what was emerging was the alliance of the discontented of Ireland towards a prospect of possibly national liberation. The irony of this situation, though, is that at the very same time, many of the Ulster chiefs who'd been fighting along with O'Neill and O'Donnell since the very start really want an end to the war. They're fed up with the domination that O'Neill and O'Donnell have imposed upon them. And also, there's near famine conditions throughout Ireland in this mid-90s period, which is hampering uh, particularly the Confederates, but more so and most of all, the state forces. And at one point in these negotiations, to prevent a serious breakdown, O'Neill and O'Donnell arrest their own underlings. An extraordinary turnabout. But anyhow, these offers and overtures are really a softening up process for what happens in the warfare that occurs in 98. And that surrounds the great victory at the Battle of the Yellow Ford. Now, there's two interesting documents in relation to this. There is a position paper by uh, Captain Stafford, where he lays out all the delays, the delaying tactics, and the tactics that O'Neill uses in the course of a year, uh, when he declares truces, and so on and so forth, so that they could fight the English sort of on the hop, as it were, and get in their harvest as well. And so he shows in his document that many of these truces and tactics and ceasefires are simply that. There are ways of advancing the Irish Confederate cause. And he also lays out in his document what should be done, but he also lays out that all of these uh, Irish families and lordships have their divisions, which must be exploited. And both he and another man called Captain Daughtry put together a project for a landing in Loch Foyle behind the Irish lines, which will exploit all these differences, the differences which were seen in those negotiations and arrests in the spring of 98. So very rapidly, a plan goes ahead to make this uh, incision behind Irish lines at Loch Foyle, insert a large force by amphibious means around Derry and to start a counteroffensive between behind Irish lines. Now it's that expedition going to Loch Foyle which I think actually determines the march on the Blackwater in August 98. Many people were saying that the Blackwater fort established by Lord Burr should be withdrawn. It had been besieged for uh, several months by August 98. Ormond thinks it sh should be withdrawn. The Dublin Council think it probably should be withdrawn. But Bagnell proceeds. He wants to do the march into the centre of Tyrone. And the only reason he can I assume that he decided to do that was that it was his half-brother, Samuel Bagnell, who was leading the force to Loch Foyle. So this was going to be a great Bagnell-led attempt on O'Neill. 
which goes, of course, badly wrong. Because Bagnell marches out of uh, Armagh, apparently smoking a pipe, and one person describes him as, as if he's going to a Sunday football match, but the march to the Blackwater Fort to relieve the Blackwater Fort is, of course, a complete disaster. The greatest defeat up to then ever administered to English arms in Ireland. That defeat uh, really sends O'Neill's reputation sky high. And then, extraordinarily, the Dublin Council send a letter to O'Neill urging restraint uh, against the men trapped and wounded in Armagh, saying, now that you've killed your adversary, Bagnell, you can leave us alone, more or less. Extraordinary letter. And it just shows the weakness of the Dublin state at this point. And the real question here is, did O'Neill fail to follow up this victory? Was he more Hannibal than Caesar, as it were? And arguments could be made. But the most important thing that he achieved initially, he didn't march in Dublin, because what he wanted to, to find out was would the expedition come to Loch Foyle? And of course it didn't. What it did was it came to the Northern Peel, to Dundalk, and then to Newry to reinforce the Northern Peel uh, from where um, Bagnell's forces had been destroyed and removed. So consequently, Samuel Bagnell was diverted into the uh, garrisons and territories that his relative had previously uh, uh, occupied. So that is the reason why there wasn't an immediate march in Dublin, as it were. Because the Loch Foyle expedition, O'Neill realised its strategic importance. However, the victory at the Yellow Ford was followed up. As a result of the victory at the Yellow Ford, the Irish Confederates were now in control of the Midlands, with only the exception of the garrisons at Maryborough and Phillipstown, which are um, Portleash and uh, Dangan. So again, the strategic heart of Ireland, which is hugely important, as once again James O'Neill has uh, laid out, controlling the centre of Ireland is hugely important for the Irish operations in this war. And at this stage, the Crown forces are being pulled everywhere. Uh, Ormond was diverted to the Ulster borders after the Battle of the Yellow Ford, and that uh, marching up to the borders, basically to, in his case, County Cavan, County Monaghan, means that Owney O'Moore and Captain Terrell have a free march into Munster. And basically in a day, an extraordinary event altogether, the Munster plantation is overthrown. So there must have been a huge amount of tension in Munster to enable this to happen. Lord President Thomas Norris hesitates about opposing the force coming in, he thinks it's much larger than it actually was. And once he hesitated, then the English settlers fled the country, fled from the countryside and from their uh, estates and castles in the countryside. And as a result, the Munster town had to receive a couple of thousand refugees at least. The Earl of Ormond then comes south to, and he doesn't necessarily rescue the Munster plantation. What he does is he marches around the Munster towns and basically gets their defences into some order. He saves the towns. He doesn't save the plantation. But once again, Ormond coming down into Munster, there's a big gap in, uh, in uh, Carlow, Kilkenny area, and Mount Garrett then starts up. 
And basically, the government's front line becomes NACE. So what had happened in Munster is, had there been a conspiracy in Munster, we're not quite sure Well, it was just a huge opportunism. There's certainly been a softening up process by the McShees in County Limerick in 95 and 96. And they had been sent there from the north back to their old haunts as Gallo class as the Desmond clan. And also there was the apostolic, vicar apostolic, Dermot McRae, who had been campaigning for many years for a rising. The big question is, in Munster, was there a massacre of English Protestants? Certainly, English Protestants were attacked, but how many killed, we don't really have a figure in that. But it was a much more religious event in Munster than any of the other activities across Ireland. But the crucial thing is there at the bottom, you can't see that, reinforcements crucially had arrived by December 98. 2,000 men into Munster. And that makes the critical difference. Because if a monster town had been lost, that would have been the gateway in for possible Spanish uh, entry into Ireland. But no monster towns were lost. The crucial thing is reinforcements arrive. Also, other opportunities are lost by the Irish Confederates. And this is why, as I say, they can't win. There is an attempt on Dublin. This was an extraordinary event in itself, which is not much reported in history books. O'Neill had been encouraging Catholic priests and activists in Dublin and the Peel from the start of this war. What happened in October 98, the very start of October, almost coinciding with the, uh, the revolt of Munster, is that a man called Captain Lapley had been sent over by Cecil, Secretary Cecil, and Sir Walter Raleigh, and he had been given the job of killing O'Neill. This is how desperate the English were getting. Later on, they tried to do other things like poison O'Neill's Eucharistic host and things. It was getting like Fidel Castro at some point. Um, but O'Neill discovered what Lapley was up to. Lapley was an army captain. And extraordinarily, and probably foolishly, O'Neill sends Lapley back to Dublin to organize the taking of Dublin with the other activists in Dublin until O'Neill, they would open the gates for O'Neill's forces and Neil Burns. However, the state got very lucky. They discovered Lapley's new project when he came back to Dublin. Lapley, a man called Kyle, and a man called Shelton were rapidly tried and executed. A man called Lennon, he had supplied all the information. He had turned state's evidence. And what is indicative of the importance of this event was he was given a pension of 12 shillings a day for, um, for turning state's evidence. And I really think that the discovery of this plot puts the frighteners on activists in Dublin and the Peel generally. So what you get then is also further extension across the south of Ireland. O'Neill then makes a series of representatives on the ground. One English source says he makes Viceroys, creates earls, bestows baronies, sets up and pulls down. He uses his authority uh, to basically create facts on the ground, but not very strong facts. In the case of the straw rope earl, James Fitzthomas Fitzgerald, the Earl of Desmond, Mount Garrett revolts in, um, and he, he hopes to replace Ormond, who hasn't got a male earl at this time. Mount Garrett is uh, married to O'Neill's daughter. In Thomond, Tig O'Brien revolts 
and is appointed chief in opposition to his brother, the Earl. And then you get this extraordinary event of Thomas Lee engaging in a conspiracy uh, to take Dublin Castle uh, and stage a revolt with a man called uh, Fitzpiers. And this is Fitzpiers, is head of the Bastard Geraldines, as he's called. And the person, really, you wonder, is he involved in this, is the Earl of Kildare. The Earl of Kildare at this stage refuses to come into the council in Dublin. He says he's sick. Um, but the thing was that Thomas Lee's conspiracy was really against the Earl of Ormond because he thought all the trouble in Ireland came from the Earl of Ormond. And so the whole thing falls flat. Like, Thomas Lee here, dressed in uh, party garb, uh, is, um, is a sort of Walter Mitty character. So the problem was that by the end of 98, I think the Irish Confederates had reached their military uh, maximum. They controlled the interior of Ireland, but really they hadn't got the military force particularly to take garrisons, fortified positions, or fortified towns. So what was needed was a different approach, and this was a diplomatic approach if you were going to win the country. And this had already started with overtures um, to Fitzpiers, a letter, a, a, a Catholic letter sent to Fitzpiers, and uh, the operations of uh, Cray and Archer in Munster. This, uh, and a new agenda was emerging, but it was delayed. It was delayed by the arrival of the Earl of Essex. Uh, he famously told O'Neill that uh, he, he, he cared as much about religion as his horse. But the Earl of Essex didn't achieve a lot, but did strengthen the towns and garrisons throughout Ireland. But once again, at the end of his time, he left Ireland to a triumvirate government of Lord Justices and the Earl of Ormond as general. And a very weak government indeed for about six months. And that left the way clear for a nationalist pitch. And that pitch, I think, essentially came, of course, from O'Neill himself, a faith and fatherland pitch, but it essentially came from James Archer. This, the style of this, these uh, documents, uh, the way they're written, uh, they start when James Archer comes to Ireland and comes to O'Neill's camp, and they end when o James Archer leaves Ireland. This uh, particular style of writing ends with him departing Ireland. And this involved making overtures to the old English of the towns and the Peel by letters and speeches. It involved a remarkable proclamation. It involved the 22 articles, which uh, Secretary Cecil said was utopia. And this involved appealing to the old English, as said, as said earlier, on the basis of a common faith and a common fatherland, that they should join the Gaelic Irish. So it was, and it was particularly pointed towards the old English. The idea was that essentially a Catholic Ireland would be created ruled across Ireland by the great magnates, but run by the old English of the towns, who would also run the economy, under a nominal English sovereignty. It was like, basically, Arthur Griffith's dual monarchy proposal, if you like, to continue the Sinn Féin metaphor, ourselves alone. But it also included O'Neill's reference to kingship the proclamation document, which said, 
if I got to be king of Ireland, if I didn't have the, the Catholic religion, I would not accept the same. So it's this rather strange and rhetorical statement, but it, kingship had certainly been thought of. And that put the old English particularly on their guard. Also, the thing is that he had to justify why he was fighting for religion, because as was said, his earliest, earlier religious activities had been somewhat indifferent. And this is where I would say, and agree with Sean of Whelan, that Hugh O'Neill was a patriot magra Louis in spite of himself. Like what he had to do to win Ireland and to win supremacy in Ulster was essentially offer the same conditions to everybody in Ireland. And that meant him adopting a national platform. It wasn't as if he was a nationalist, but he had to get other people then to form a nationalist ideology for him. And that essentially, I think, was James Archer of Kilkenny. And here's James Archer along with O'Neill Moore, James Archer in the hat. And the extraordinary thing about the proclamation in particular is once again, it contains this extraordinary language. And it contains, I think, the idea of agency. And it turns the language of English colonialism on its head, and that's why it's important. I will employ myself to the uttermost of my power in the defense, in their defense of the Peelsmen, and for the extirpation of heresy, the planting of the Catholic religion, the delivery of our country of infinite murders, wicked and detestable policies by which this kingdom was hitherto governed, nourished in obscurity and ignorance, maintained in barbarity and incivility, and consequently of the infinite evils which are too lamentable to be rehearsed. This is extraordinary language. And it's in English, interestingly enough, as well. And also, the proclamation is signed at the top, O'Neill, his native title, like a royal proclamation. And of course, it's dated by the Catholic calendar. However, that pitch to the Peel's men of Ireland doesn't work. Even when O'Neill comes in this remarkable tour of Munster, he's told in no uncertain terms by the old English and Munster people like David Barry at Barry's, Barry's Court Castle, in County Cork, that there's no way they're going to give up their English rights, their English laws, uh, for the uncertain future of Gaelic tyranny. And of course, then O'Neill proceeds to devastate Barry's countries, the same thing that he'd been threatening the Peelsmen. So without getting the political coming over of the Peelsmen, what they needed to do was force them to come over. And this was the result of this was the approach to Rome. Archer goes to Rome, and then Peter Lombard here writes a commentarius, a pitch to the Pope to get a support for O'Neill. Once again, there's an intimation of kingship and national liberation. O'Neill is obviously the man they're thinking of. What they're asking for is the excommunication of the old English who are not supporting them. But in the course of their activities in Rome, they come under pressure from the Spanish, and the Spanish want something different. They don't want a semi-independent Ireland. They want a transfer of sovereignty to Spain. And so none of this is about self-determination in the end, because actually Rome is going to determine this, or the Spaniards, one way or the other. It's not the Irish. However, in Rome, Pope Clement VIII isn't interested particularly in either plan, either the independent Irish plan or the Spanish plan. The Pope himself wants to be free of Spanish control. 
He's looking to the reemergence of France in Europe and not to be controlled by the Spaniards any longer. The most he will do will make O'Neill the Pope's Captain General in Ireland, which is a titular position, and send a papal nuncio. But there's going to be no excommunication of non-supporters of O'Neill, and there's going to be no sovereignty transfer. He's not going to agree to either. And that's why the Spanish option is so very important, because I think O'Neill always favoured the Spanish option. And I think, in fact, he'd become excessed with Spain as a result of the 1588 Armada, was shipwrecked largely in northwest Ireland. It was, in some respects, a transformative event as regards the military revolution in Ireland, and also the people in the north of Ireland and the west, northwest of Ireland seeing the importance of Spain. Because really, before that, Spain, Spanish interests were really south of Galway. But now they impacted on a different part of Ireland. And on the occasion of the massacre at Inishowen, O'Neill told then old O'Donnell, Sir Hugh O'Donnell, for doing service on the Spaniards, he should go and seek a dwelling elsewhere. For they had betrayed the Spaniards, who were their best friends and their only refuge in all extremities. And he's supposed to have said that in 1588, which is extraordinarily early. Also at that time, O'Neill acquires a Spanish manservant who's with him almost for the rest of his career, a man called Pedro Blanco. So during the war, there's a continuous search for Spanish support. Messengers are sent out. Philip II tells uh, O'Healy's mission in 93 that they're only get, going to get the least amount of support. So the Spaniards aren't particularly interested in Ireland. But they have to take an interest in 96 after Essex's attack on Cadiz, and they send the two missions by Cobos. And that results in the um, Irish Confederates making an alliance with them. The interesting thing is that then Terrell's appointment, that it seems to be that O'Neill makes Terrell's appointment as commander, his mercenary commander. He does so, it commissions him as basically the Spanish Viceroy in Ireland. That is the document that has come down to us, which is an interesting way of commissioning somebody because he's not the Spanish representative in Ireland. And one of the other things about the failure of Spanish support to come before it should have is that there's a lot of propaganda going around the continent, particularly these Italian publications by a man called Bernardino Baccari, which says that the Irish have nearly liberated their own country which seems to suggest that no outside intervention is necessary. So it may be that this sort of propaganda meant that the Spanish disregarded the Irish cause for some time. But at any rate, spurned by the old English with the diplomatic offensive, um, there's no alternative but Spanish support. And that Spanish support becomes more and more necessary after Mountjoy is appointed. The Loch Foyle expedition, which is going to turn the tables on O'Neill and O'Donnell, finally sails and lands at Derry and extends itself out to, to, to Straban, Lifford, and other places in the northwest. O'Neill finally sends his son as hostage to Spain. He'd never um, agreed to turn over any of his children to the English, but now he sends his son Henry as a hostage to the Spaniards. O'Neill helps the Spaniards spurn uh, the papal nuncios coming to Ireland, 
But finally, O'Neill has to go himself to Conceal, where a much depleted Spanish force eventually arrives. Too little, too late. And of course, they're defeated at Conceal. And as O'Neill says after the battle, this day, the kingdom was lost. Thank you. Thank you.